This is a new podcast from 6A Church called Questions, where I, along with Jim Huntimer and others, will sit down each week and take a look at some of the questions that people have about God, Christianity, the Bible, and so much more. Be sure to leave any questions you have for each episode on the comment section for that episode, and enjoy. Well, hello everyone. Welcome back to uh, another episode, second episode of our of our new questions podcast that Jim and I are doing, and Jim's here with me again. Hi, everybody. So uh, last week we kicked this off uh, with with a, uh, a good. This is what what they call a long form podcast. We're having just a, a, a conversation, a discussion, not trying to rush through things, but trying to really deal with the topic as best we can. Of course, none of these topics can be dealt with thoroughly in a one-hour podcast. Books and books have been written on them, but um, last week we, we wrestled with the question about science and whether or not science has disproven Christianity, and today we're going to be looking at the Bible and, uh, and talking about why you can take the Bible literally, why you can believe the Bible, why you can trust the Bible. And so uh, to, to kind of set that off, last Thursday, um, my, my family and I, we went to Astoria and we went to an antique mall. And while we're walking through this antique mall, there was this spinning case of, of religious books. And on, that, on the case, there was one that was called the Jefferson Bible. And I'd never seen one in print. I'd, I've heard about the Jefferson Bible. I know we've kind of talked about the Jefferson Bible, but Jefferson was famous for cutting out all of the stuff in the Bible he didn't like. So he cut out all the miracles, especially all the kind of supernatural things. And I picked up this copy of the Jefferson Bible, and it was smaller than even a New Testament, but it contained supposedly the whole Bible that he liked, that he agreed with. And uh, there's a there's a great tendency, I think, today to to want to do that, to to want to cut out the parts of the uh, parts of scripture that are difficult the parts that that are maybe culturally difficult to understand the teachings that don't line up with our culture today that our culture has a problem with and that's and that's assuming that we get even to the point of being willing to listen to the teaching of the bible if we've gotten you know past where a lot of our culture gets stuck thinking that the bible is just not reliable, not trustworthy, not able to uh, not able to really be a source of truth in our lives. So we got a lot to talk about today to kind of set the stage. I don't know if you have a place you want to start to to get us going. Um, not in particular. Um, I think one of, one of the things in the field of scholarship, I think that we've we've seen it was especially prevalent back when I was in college, and you don't see it as much today because it doesn't work. And that is um, taking your own personal beliefs, like Jefferson did, mm-hmm. and and using that to interpret what was the Bible and to decide what was really true and really not. In in my day, it was the search for the historical Jesus, which you don't hear much about. Today, because okay. the fact is there wasn't any evidence, and it was all people's opinions. Right? Yeah, and so I think we have we we're doing that. We're doing what Jefferson did, probably to the nth degree. Now yeah. it's like we want to look at we want to look at scripture, but we only want to look at it from the standpoint of um, what we think. And our thoughts and our beliefs, our preconceived notions of how the world is supposed to work, become. Really, I guess they really become um, sovereign. They become, um, you know, we become omniscient. We become the omniscient, like in a story, the omniscient narrator. We become the omniscient ones who then get to look at at scripture written from the omniscient one, (laughs) given by the omniscient one, and we decide, no, that doesn't mesh with our lives. That doesn't mesh with what we want right now. So we're just going to neglect that part of it. Right. I mean, everybody has a set of personal beliefs. They haven't really, most people haven't really thought through them greatly, but but they believe certain things, and, and the assumption is that those things are true. Um, in the past, it wasn't that big of a deal, but in the current uh, culture that we live in, that's become the norm, mm-hmm. because people say, you determine your own truth, which Kind of uh, defies the definition of what the word truth means. Right. <laughs> yeah, if everyone de- defines their own reality, then there is no <laughs> true reality. Right. Everything. Everybody's reality is different. Everyone's reality contradicts one another. Right. And uh, I think we see that happening. 
a lot uh, right now in the world. But let's um, maybe let's talk about let's talk about the Bible. Let's start talking about how the Bible was put together. Let's talk about um, some of the uh, the scrutiny that the Bible has come over. Maybe let's uh, start by talking about I I have um, and this is an old book. This is Josh McDowell's answers to tough questions. So there may there may be even more manuscripts that have been found uh, since since this time because this book was published in 1993. So that's they've right. Virtually every everything published about the Dead Sea Scrolls before the 1990s has been proven false because they only had a handful of scrolls that had actually been released uh, because the people who were responsible for them didn't want to release them until they made the definitive translation and often they didn't have time to do any of the translation. But in the 1990s, there was a movement to get all those scrolls released, and they found that they were very different than what people had assumed from the few scrolls that they actually had access to. But so uh, McDowell says that the that there are 5,500 copies uh, in existence that contain all or part of the New Testament, um, and that there are... 18,000 copies of the versions of different, I guess, different versions of the text. I'm trying to read and talk at the same time. <laughs> so it's kind of a, kind of hard to, to figure that out. But, but, and by contrast, we were talking yesterday that, um, other, other writings that, that people don't question have one or two manuscripts. And I think the one I was trying to think of yesterday was Plato, but I didn't look it up, but that there, there are two manuscripts, you know, two copies of some of his writings. And because of those two copies, I think, if, and I could be wrong, so if I'm wrong, you know, there's somebody out there that starts with a P that, <laughs> uh, that this is about. But um, we, we don't question his existence or what he said based on those two manuscripts. Alone, and yet we have thousands of of the New Testament, and uh, no no book has been scrutinized like like the Bible has, and still stood up under the test of that scrutiny. And regardless of all of the testing, all of the scrutinization, people still want to find a reason to say that it's inaccurate. You can't trust it. Right. For example, at the time that the the King James version was translated, they had. There was only five ancient Greek manuscripts available, okay. and they didn't have they didn't have a Greek manuscript for the entire New Testament. And okay. so, the person who was putting Erasmus, the guy who put together the Greek New Testament that the translators used, in parts where they didn't have an ancient Greek manuscript, he took the Latin and translated them into the Greek. Mm-hmm. And and you know. It's important to know that even with the the few manuscripts they had in either Greek or Hebrew, they did a a phenomenal job on the basis of what they had. But even the King James translators recognized that as more information was discovered, as more transcripts were discovered – We'd have to study them and revise the translation. They right. said that in their preface to their translation, and and that's exactly what biblical scholarship has done over the centuries. Yeah, yeah, um, and and now not just with the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I mean, you know, I think there there are more more findings even since the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm sure. not an expert on this by any means, but I know that um, even our understanding of the Dead Sea Scrolls continues to change as they study them more and more. Um, but let, let's talk real quickly about about the canonization of Scripture. I don't. Oh. Yeah, I know. I know. There's maybe some confusion about that. Yeah, um, and and there there are lots of books written, but usually most of the books that are written about the canon try to define why books were accepted and it's according to modern standards you know the guy was a prophet the guy you know did this and that and that's what qualified those books to be accepted as as scripture but the reality is that scripture was just recognized immediately by the first people who received it. The first people who received the letters of Paul, for instance, knew that these were important, and they copied them and sent them to other churches to make sure they had them because they realized that Paul's writings, for the most part, were Scripture, but not all of Paul's letters 
are found in the New Testament. That was a third letter to the Corinthians that he calls a harsh letter uh, that, that was never copied and sent, probably because it was personal to the Corinthian church, and it wasn't something that would be helpful for other churches to know. Um, and even in the Old Testament in particular, the the Israelites were a very literate people and produced volumes and volumes of writings that are not found in Scripture. So I've talked with people who thought that the reason they were Scripture is because somebody just had an old writing and they respected it, so they put it in in a scripture. But we see that even uh, somebody as the prophet Jeremiah, who was recognized in his day as a prophet who wasn't well-liked, I mean, his own family tried to have him assassinated because he was speaking God's words and they didn't want to hear it. Right. <laughs> but when he, when he when God had him write a, a scroll and his friend Baruch translated it and they read it, the people who heard this scroll being read in the temple, uh, they immediately recognized it for what it was, the Word of God, and they, they, um, they got it from the person who was doing the reading and took it to King Jehoiakim, who hated God. Mm-hmm. He, was, he introduced all kinds of, of uh, idolatry and, and things, right. and, and of course, he immediately, as they read it, he would cut off the column and throw it in the fire, and the other people around were aghast because he was destroying God's Word. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, after that, God helped Jeremiah to to recreate that document and add more things to it mm-hmm. because people recognized that Jeremiah was a prophet. However, uh, we know that he, when King Josiah died, a man who loved the Lord and tried to create reform in the land, when he died, Jeremiah wrote a series of lamentations, or which are, are sad writings because of a, a sad event. And and the uh, the Jews used these writings to commemorate Josiah, but they were never accepted as scripture hmm. because they could immediately see it was different. Right. And this isn't to be confused with the Book of Lamentations, which right. Jeremiah also wrote, which had much broader significance because it was a it was as he walked through the destroyed city of Jerusalem after the Babylonians had destroyed it and had tremendous uh, emotional effect on on the Jews at the time. And and we can see a lot of things about learn a lot of things about faith. From from it. Okay, so um, Jeremiah didn't write. Not everything Jeremiah wrote became scripture, and the same is true for Solomon. Solomon, we we know that he wrote over a thousand songs, yet only three of them were recognized as the word of God, right? And having scriptural authority. the The point is that the Old Testament Israelites and the New Testament Christians. Are often portrayed as ignorant, superstitious people, and and it's that superstitious nature that becomes the foundation for a lot of things people say. Right. But they were very literate; they were very intelligent. Right. If you look at the other works that they produced, and and we only have some of them, but what we have show highly intelligent people who are really thinking about the issues of life, mm-hmm. and and so when they recognize something as scripture, it wasn't on a superstitious superstitious basis but it was on the basis that they knew they could see the difference between what god had given people and what people were writing for themselves right so um so scripture then was was basically recognized by god's people right especially in the old testament now new testament you know there've been uh, there've been uh, what the different councils and and things like that and a lot of people would would think that a group of people get together at these councils and they just kind of read through all of the different uh, all the different letters that were out there and all the different gospels and all of that and they decide oh we're going to put this one in but we're not going to put that one in and we're not going to put that one in this is the assumption the conspiracy that people think we're not going to put that one in because it makes Jesus look bad or because it contradicts with this one so it can't be in there because it's not it's it doesn't support the agenda that we have for the church and so these councils get together and they decide what what the new testament is and anything that's going to make us look bad is going to be cut out but that's not really what happened right no um the 
the New Testament, for example, um, by the end of the first century of the church, the uh, the writings of the of the early church fathers were quoting from almost every book in the New Testament as scripture as authority. Even in the book of Second Peter, which was written in the sixties uh, before he was killed, and he recognizes the letters of Paul as scripture. Okay, so say that again. So by the end of the first century, right, 100 AD, um, we have an, uh, quite a, a good number of the writings of the early church fathers as they were discussing some of the issues that they were dealing with. Okay. And they were quoting from most of the books in the New Testament. Some of the books are just very short or very small and didn't really deal with the issues that they were dealing with, but most of the New Testament books were already being quoted as the authority of what we should believe as Scripture and coming from God. And so they recognized this before any of the councils took place. Okay. So so, so Peter's writing and he quotes Paul or, or vice versa. Well, he refers to Paul. Okay. He wasn't quoting Paul at that point, but he, he refers to Paul's writings and says, sometimes they're hard to understand, right. <laughs> but, but just like other scriptures, mm-hmm. and he, he, combined, he refers to them as scriptures, right. which would be the word they use for the Old Testament. Okay. So, so the actual writers of the New Testament – are referring to one another as writers of Scripture. Right. And Luke, for instance, quotes the Gospel of Mark. In, in many places, the stories from Luke are word-for-word word identical to Mark, and Mark is most likely the first of the Gospels written. And he was basically writing down the, the teachings of Peter about what Jesus did and said. And Peter refers to that in First Peter, that he realizes he's going to die soon. No, that's in Second. I think that's in Second. I I don't remember. It's in First and Second Peter, and um, uh, he refers to the fact that he's going to die soon, and so he's going to make sure that people have the truth about Jesus mm-hmm. after he's dead, and that he is probably referring to the Gospel of Mark because Mark was his assistant at that time. Okay. So, um, and both Matthew and Luke quote extensively from Mark. Which showed that they believed that what Mark was writing was the truth. Right. And so basically with all of this is what we're saying is that we can trust that the books that have been traditionally held by the church to be Scripture, the Word of God, really are. The evidence is all in favor of that. And we can really trust those books as opposed to other books that, that may have been written trying to portray um, what the gospel really means. Okay, so um, why the councils then? Why why was there a need for councils, and why why would why do we make such a big deal about that today? Well, the important thing to understand is the counts. There were several councils that discussed issues of the canon of which books should be in the Bible, but they weren't determining w- which books should be. There were questions that came up. For instance, some of the smaller books, Second uh, and Third John, the Book of Jude, which are each one chapter long. Right. A lot of the churches never received copies, and so they were asking, "Why are these books in there?" And then there were other really good books written by uh, people in the early church, uh, and they were saying, well, this is really a good book. It's really helpful to us. Shouldn't we add that to, to the Scripture? And the, the answer for both of those was, for the, in the first case, to explain why these books were originally accepted by the people who, who originally received them, okay. and that satisfied everybody. And this, in the second case, uh, they realized that these books were sometime after they didn't have the endorsement of the, of the prophets, and as good as it is for Christians to read them, they're really not the Word of God. They were written by people who came much later, and it's just like going to the Christian bookstore and finding all kinds of really good books, right. but they're not God's Word. Right, yeah. Christians should read books. Right. Christians, there's a lot of good books out there about, you know, Christian living, prayer, theology, even how to read the Bible, or books about how the Bible was put together, all those things. It's good to read, but that doesn't, just because they're about something Christian doesn't mean that they should be 
Scripture. Right. Scripture, the difference is that Scripture is used as an authority on what we believe. It's there to answer our questions when we have disagreements. It's there to to learn the truth about God. These other books all rely on what they learn from Scripture. Right, right. So, um, kind of changing changing directions a little bit. Let's let's look at um, at Scripture itself, and um, and the confirmation of Scripture. We talked a little bit about about uh, the councils and and what that confirms. I found what I was looking for earlier, so I finally remembered. I, I remembered what it was. Um, I was looking. I, I was wrong, so I said two. It was seven. There were uh, it was Pla- it was Plato. The earliest copy from Plato uh, was at is nine hundred A.D. Even though it was supposedly written at uh, somewhere between four twenty seven and three forty seven B.C. So that's a pretty big gap, twelve hundred years. And there are seven copies, and we can't test the accuracy accuracy of the copies because there aren't enough to really test. Um, Caesar's writings were written between 100 and 44 BC. The earliest copy is also 900 AD, a thousand year span. Ten copies can't test the accuracy of those copies. Aristotle's writings, 384 BC or so, 1100 years between the writing and the earliest copy, which is a 1400 year uh, span. The earliest copy came at 1100 AD. There's 49 copies, but again, not enough. Not enough copies of multiple things to test the accuracy. Homer's Iliad was written 900 BC. The earliest copy is from 400 BC. It's a 500-year span. There are 643 copies, and the accuracy is about 95%. But when you get to the New Testament, uh, the, the date that it was written was the first century AD, between 50 and 100 AD. The earliest copies are in the early 100s. So there's less than a less than a hundred years, most of the time less than fifty years span between the writing and the earliest copy, and there are fifty six hundred manuscripts, and the accuracy of all of the copies is ninety nine point five percent. And where they differ is on on little things like you know uh, if and and the you know really insignificant words, nothing about the actual teaching right. changes. There's, yeah, there's no doctrine that's dependent upon a question passage. And, you know, in the Old Testament, there's maybe 5% that's questioned, which, which are usually words referring to, to animals or, or foods or, or names, which are easily miscopied. And so in some cases, we don't really even know what animal it was, be, was being referred to. Right. There's a well-known cult that in their doctrinal statement says that they believe in, in Scripture as the Word of God as long as it has been transmitted correctly, which means anything they don't want to believe that's found in the Bible, they just say, well, it is errors have crept in as people made copies. Oh. But with so many manuscripts and so many of them written close to the time of the originals, uh-huh. we can test, go back and... Anytime they find a mistake, they can actually trace sometimes to the exact manuscript where that mistake crept in. And so there's no reason to actually distrust anything that we find in either the Old Testament or the New Testament. Right, right. Yeah, so, um, so by comparison, we've said already that, that there's never been a more contested, challenged, and persecuted, do- persecuted document on the planet than the Bible and yet there has never been a more trustworthy, historically accurate, and protected document either. No, no other document, people haven't gone to great lengths to preserve the Bible, to pre- preserve Scripture in the early years when it, when it was in danger of being you know, burned or you know, and destroyed, and people, were trying, you know, people gave their lives to protect it. Um, so you know, that speaks to, to the validity of it. But in the, in the book that, we're, that we've based this series on, uh, The Reason for God by Timothy Keller, one of the things he talks about in this chapter is legends and the idea of legends. And so um, he, he spends a, a good amount of time dealing with legends. Um, and last Easter, we talked about legends quite a bit for our Easter service. But let's, let's maybe get into that a little bit when we're when we're talking about scripture and legend and Jesus and how you know how that would affect our reading of the New Testament. 
Yeah, it's really interesting if you if you take legends that have similar plots, like like somebody coming back from the dead, and and the biblical account of the the uh, resurrection, and you compare them, you'll see the legends are filled with fanciful stuff, and they're they're written in a way that you know that these aren't true. They're just they're just myths and legends. But when you look at scripture, it's stated just plainly. The story is told without embellishment, but with all kinds of little details that you don't you never find in legends. Right. Um, one of one of the funnest ones is the fact when Jesus was being a Arrested, there was a, a young man who had been watching them in the garden, and the guards went to grab him, and they grabbed his cloak, and and he shrugged out of the coat and fled naked. Right, and and there's no reason. Yeah, why to, would you include that? Right, what? except <laughs> that this is found in the Gospel of Mark, yeah. and and Mark was a young man, probably a teenager, living in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and it's quite possible that he was just stick letting him know I was there I saw right. it <laughs> yeah but but there's no there's no if this is a legend why would you include a, that in the legend right. and there's a lot of other things like that that we talked about last Easter um, you know where where Peter Peter and and his account gets called Satan by Jesus mm-hmm and if you're writing a if you're writing a legend and you're one of the main characters in the legend, why would you include that? Why would you put that in there? You think I think I would cut that out. I wouldn't want the world to know that Jesus called me Satan. Um, women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. Yeah. And why would you include that when it's culturally unacceptable to to acknowledge the validity of women, the word of women at all? Right. They had no testimony value. Right. You know, if you were trying to to build a story and prove the story, there's no reason to include the appearances to women other than the fact that they actually happened. And they're the first ones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, very, the very first people who see Jesus come back right. to life. And of course, throughout the Gospels, Jesus is especially sensitive to women. Right. You know, meeting alone with the, the Samaritan woman at the well, that would have been scandalous. Right. And in fact, when you read the account, the apostles were puzzled because he was there by himself with a woman. But he was, he was showing her the way to eternal life because he had compassion for her and and he does this there are numerous women in the gospels uh, that you normally would not find in ancient literature yeah and if it's a legend you're not going to include things that are totally countercultural right because you you want you want to you would build it up within the culture right so that he can be the hero of that time mm-hmm. you mentioned mark the streaker um John constantly bragging about being the disciple Jesus loved, <laughs> you know? and then he brags about beating Peter to the tomb. You know, uh-huh. he outran Peter. Why, I mean, all of these details. Why would you include these details if it's you know if it's a legend? It's just awkward. It's weird. Uh-huh. But they but they're testaments to the to the accuracy of the events. You know, there's no reason to include it other than that's what actually happened. Right. And and even John he brags about beating. He brags about beating Peter to the tomb, but then he doesn't. He's not the one that goes in first, right? So why would he include that? <laughs> he brags about himself, and then he makes himself look like he doesn't have faith to go. You know, so there's just no reason to do that, other than you're saying this is actually what happened, right? And and of course, in in the book Reasons for God, he points out that this is completely contrary to. Uh, to writings in those days, even writings that were about right, realistic right, right. events, mm-hmm. they just didn't do that. It wasn't their style. And when yeah, it, so, let's talk about that for a minute. You know, fiction today is different than fiction back then, right? And even today, in fiction, writers write in a particular tradition. If they're writing in a mystery, they usually follow one of the traditional ways of writing a mystery, and there's a bunch of them. And the, the same thing with, with most novels. You'll find some experimental novels, but that's because there are thousands of, of, of novels and thousands of, of true books written every year. And so they're very open to trying new things to get attention for for their book, but in right. the ancient world, uh, it was they had to make copy every copy by hand, mm-hmm. and so only a few books were ever copied. And the authors of those books, if they want people to read them, they're going to stick with the traditional way of writing those things. When Mark wrote the Gospel. 
there's no such thing as gospel literature. He invented that genre. Hmm. And you know, he took the chance to write this story in a way that no one else was writing. And later, there are all kinds of books in the gospel tradition that, that followed his model, um, not just about Jesus, but about other kinds of characters. They would follow that way of, of writing about people. Mm-hmm. He invented that genre, though, and the only reason is because this he, – he just so wanted the facts – of Jesus' life and sayings to be present there on the page so that people could believe them and know that this is what who Jesus really was. I mean, it's basic, It's a documentary almost. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a biography of Jesus' life. Right. And, but Keller argues that the, the fiction that we have today, which you were talking about, um, that's, that's fairly realistic – that's that uses people in in a world we can imagine that's very real to our world um only came up 300 years ago mm-hmm. so so to argue that the gospels are are realistic fiction it's a realistic mythical fiction kind of a thing you know how could how could somebody you know, project a style of, of fiction that didn't exist and wouldn't exist for another 1,700 years to try to tell a story. You know, th- the argument itself starts to lose lose its weight. Right. And there's an interesting thing in the Gospel of, of Mark, too, in line with this, that if you get an older translation, um, so the King James Bible would, would be an example of this, almost every Every sentence starts with the word and. Jesus did this, and he did this, and he said this, and he did this. So he was focusing on what Jesus said and did. He wasn't trying to explain what it meant. Mm-hmm. He wasn't trying to demonstrate this is this is a standard character, but he's just putting the facts out there on paper. Right. And uh, that's a very good reason to believe that he was just writing true stuff. Mm-hmm. But John, on the other hand, does get into a lot more explanation of what Jesus right. was teaching. Right. But he was also Jesus' right-hand man. He was the disciple right. Jesus loved. And he was very familiar with the other three Gospels, but he was writing things that weren't in the other Gospels. And you can see connections that showed that he was familiar. And But the reason his Gospel is so different and contains so many more of Jesus' uh, sermons, as well as a lot of personal explanations, explanation was because he was writing in response to the other Gospels to add to the message and to make sure people understood uh, the Gospel aspect, the good news of salvation available to anyone who believes. Yeah. So I want to I jump now to um, that the idea that, that, that the Bible can be proved by outside sources. So there are outside sources that you can go check and see and that they actually line up with what the Bible teaches. I'll read one that I shared last year at Easter, but then I want to get into uh, into Egypt and the Old Testament, the record of all the events and the plagues and the and Joseph and the buying and selling of land, those mm-hmm. those conversations we had. But um and and Luke chapter three, verse one and two, Luke says, in the fifteenth year, so there's a very specific time Fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis and Licentius Tetrarch of Abilene. So lots of names, you know, lots of name dropping, it sounds like. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, which that in itself says something, because there were apparently two high priests. It was a father and son. Right? One was retired, and his son had taken over, but the one who had retired, he still held the power. Right. But there's supposed to be one, but that tells us exact, you know, a very uh-huh. precise time. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. But these are all historically verifiable people, right? We can Tiberius Caesar was emperor. During Jesus' ministry, mm-hmm. Pontius Pilate was the fifth prefect of Judea under Tiberius. You can go prove, you can see that proven in historical documents outside Scripture. Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, Philip, the Tetrarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. You can see those, those exist in historical documents outside of Scripture, and they line up. And, and sometimes, as we were talking yesterday, um, historically, 
when it seems like something doesn't line up with Luke, what's starting, what, what seems to be happening, you were saying, is that people are adapting to Luke now because he seems to be mo- the most accurate source. Yeah, I mean, his inf- I mean, he throws in so much information, not just the names, but their titles. And because in every province they had different words for the titles of, of the leaders of that province. And, and he throws in all these different titles, and time after time they start finding information that not just the person was real, but that Luke was completely accurate in describing their titles, right. which indicates he had to do the research just to know all these things. Which you were saying one yesterday about they found when they were ex- when they were archaeologists found a plaque or a, a marker or something. Right in in the book of Romans in the sixteenth chapter, Paul is greeting people and he's sending greetings. He's writing from Corinth, and one of the people he sends a greeting from is a man named Erastus, and Paul describes him. Um, I, don't, I forget the exact title, but he was in charge of public works for the city of Corinth. And they've actually found a, a placard, an ancient placard, uh, describe, saying that this, this roadway was, was paved by Erastus, the director of public works, from his, and, and he paid all the expenses from his own pocket, hmm. uh, which is interesting about his character. And, and we right. find out he's, he was actually a Christian in, in the city of Corinth. Yeah, and so, so it's not just circular reasoning, reasoning. It's not just looking at Scripture to prove that Scripture is accurate, but sources outside of Scripture also prove the accuracy of Scripture, and more and more, as 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 archaeologists discover more and more, they discover it. Now, um, let's go back to the Old Testament and and the uh, and Joseph and the famine and all of that stuff, because there's some debate about the timeline there. Right. For instance, when you when you see one of the various movies that was that have been made about the Exodus, almost invariably they have Ramses II, also known as Ramses the Great, as the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Well he lived in the in the thirteenth uh, century BC. Um, and if the Exodus happened in the thirteenth century BC then it's myth, it's legend, because there's no connection between the story and what was happening in the Middle East in the 13th century. Yeah, and and a lot of scholars have jumped on this and declared that, that this was a legend, this story of the Exodus was just a legend that was made up hundreds of years later. But the problem is that the Bible actually dates the Exodus in the 15th century, and, and didn't you count the generations or something, or or maybe you read a book? I'm trying to remember. You somebody went back through the the genealogies right. or something to. Well, to, you can take you can take that date, which was approximately 1445 BC, and then extrapolate back. We can we can determine if you go back to the time of Joseph. The Bible gives us enough dates and the ages of people that we we can tell when Joseph lived and when he became the second most powerful man in Egypt because okay. he interpreted the Pharaoh's dream about the seven years of famine, seven years of feast. And what's interesting about this is when you look at the history of Egypt at that time, there were a couple of mysteries, according to a book on Egyptian history that I read. One mystery was that private ownership of land disappeared. Right. And the other mystery was the the Egyptian priests became the most powerful people in the local towns and villages. Mm-hmm. Well, the Bible tells us a story about how in the seven years of famine, the people were hungry for food, and so they sold all their land to Pharaoh right. in order to get food and became tenant farmers. But now, Joseph did not let the priests sell their land. He gave them free food so they could keep their land. And of course, if they were the only ones in the land, with land, they would become the most powerful people in their local villages and towns. Right. That There we have an answer to the two mysteries. Mm-hmm. Um, you've also, you can step forward from the date of the Exodus and, and date it forward, and there were some letters the, called the Alamarna letters. They found that various towns in Canaan had written to 
Egypt's Pharaoh asking for help because there were these nomads coming in from the east and stealing all their food and what they didn't steal they would destroy. So the people were starving and wanted help against these these nomadic people. And um, this was after taking the, the 15th century date, this would be after the Israelites had come in and conquered the land. Well, they didn't conquer every city. Both Joshua and Judges named the cities that they didn't conquer. Hmm. And every city that wrote letters to Egypt had not been conquered by the Israelites. Hmm. And one of those letters actually mentions Israel being in the land. Um, and also, at that partic- approximate time, the book of Judges tells us about the Midianite oppression, where the, these Midianites, who were nomads, came in from the east and were stealing all the food, which is why um, Gideon was threshing the, the wheat in secret at the beginning of his story right, right. because he wanted to protect it from these nomads. Mm-hmm. And so there you even have a confirmation of Midian's story right. by these letters. Yeah, and so um, if, you're, if you're looking at it – if you're looking at it honestly and objectively, you can you can line these things up and say, oh, this these are the things that happened at this time, and and uh, when it looks like they don't mesh up, then there must be something something must be off about my my understanding of the timeline, not the other way around. Which is what we started off with is our 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 general approach is to say I have it figured out, and so. Because there's 200 years difference between what what history tells us when these events happened and what the Bible says, then the Bible must be wrong, and I'm the one that gets to decide that that's wrong. And that like ties into what we talked about last week um, with science and scientists who are approaching you know science from a purely secular, non-biblical, even anti-biblical, anti-Christian point of view. That that they they have a natural bias to look f- to try to explain things without it lining up with scripture, and the same thing happens with historical scholarship. That they don't want h- historical scholars, secular historical scholars, don't want to do anything that's going to give scripture more validity. So they're going to go to great lengths to to tell stories and to come up with arguments that make the Bible appear to be wrong. But when you just look at it rationally, with an you know with a, with a, just a fair amount of a reasonable approach, you can see oh, it, it actually does make sense. It actually does tie in with with the actual uh, uh, timeline of events over history. Right. So, um, kind of to, to finish up our our time here, um, getting back to the New Testament, First um, Corinthians, the book of First Corinthians. Is the first book written, right? The first New Testament, the earliest manuscript. No, probably James was the earliest. Okay. Um, first Corinthians was written about 50, 56. We know that Paul was in Corinth around 56, and then he went to – and then um, took his trip to Jerusalem, which ended up in his arrest. Um, but James was probably the first book uh, written of the New Testament who, who quotes Jesus – Constantly and refers to things that Jesus says long before the Gospels were actually written down. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul's earliest book was probably Galatians. Um, some people disagree with that, but it was probably Galatians. And if it wasn't Galatians, it might have been First and Second Thessalonians because those were also early books. And you, but you can read Galatians and see Paul struggling to try to explain certain things that in later books. He was explaining very clearly, like in the book of Romans. Okay. Well, um, I have information about 1 Corinthians, and I can't remember all the things that you remember. So let me just point out a few things about 1 Corinthians. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned that Paul was in, was in Corinth about 56, so that's approximately 25 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead. Um, I was just looking up a little while ago, and – the general the general consensus is that Jesus died in 33 AD, and uh, you know and people can make an argument for that. Some people argue for 30, 30 AD, but uh, somewhere between 30 and 30 AD. So about 25 years after Jesus died and rose, we get letters like First Corinthians and less than that apparently for James and First uh, and Second Thessalonians. Um, but basically all. 
all the New Testament New Testament material was finished and beginning to be compiled and dispersed and 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 uh, ha- handed out to other people by uh, 70 A.D. with the possible exception of John being written at about 100 A.D. Well, prob- probably a little earlier, maybe 80, 80 to 90, John wrote his gospel, the three letters, and then the book of Revelation was the last thing okay. that he wrote. So, but Jesus dies in 33, and de- and, and within, within the 70 years, we have basically all of the content. Right. And and it all lines up. It all agrees. It all builds on like we talked about earlier. They're they're talking and referencing one another. Um, traditionally speaking, that's a very short amount of time. And you can see. And and this isn't really. I mean, it, it helps. I think give evidence to scripture. But um, the church just blew up. You know, immediately following. You know, it, it didn't just kind of trickle into. You know, it wasn't just an idea uh, that eventually took hold and it would take you know hundreds if not thousands of years to get to a point where uh, just a normal person getting normal followers would be able to build up a following to the level that Christianity is today with you know billions of followers on the earth claiming to be Christ followers but but within within a very short amount of time Paul's in Rome and Corinth and the gospels in Corinth and you know 25 30 years it's already started to spread massively around the world and just had this explosive growth growth something that doesn't happen with a legend that's something that doesn't happen with with just kind of a, a traditional story that gets passed around they don't they don't go there wasn't such a thing as going viral back then, right? There was no social right. media. There was no internet to make something take off like wildfire, and yet that's exactly what happened with the gospels, with the, with the with uh, the truth about Jesus' resurrection. Right, and that goes to the point of why we have so many ancient manuscripts is because the Christians were extremely industrious in copying the books that they felt were scripture and sending them on to other churches, mm-hmm. so that so that. The, the story of the gospel was spreading as fast as the people, the Christians, were spreading throughout the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And, and that would have prevented um, other details from coming in because they were, they were so passionate that this was the word of God, you know, even starting with, with the letters and then the gospels and, and, and so on. And, and, it, and it's why we have so many thousands of early manuscripts and they the the extent they went to is if they when they were copying they made a mistake they would start over often yeah <laughs> they wouldn't just scratch at, scratch it out and keep going they would start over sometimes even start from the very beginning of the book and 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 start over to make sure that they got it 100% accurate in the in the copy so um any other thoughts? Well, going back to, to 1 Corinthians, there's a couple things in 1 Corinthians I think are really significant. One is the fact that Paul in, in 1 Corinthians writes uh, about um, the Lord's Supper. This was before any of the Gospels had been written, and so that was the first written account of the Lord's Supper. But of course, what he, what he wrote was independently corroborated by uh, at least well, by Matthew, Luke, and, and Mark, uh, who also had the story independently of what Paul was saying. Mm-hmm. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's talking about the gospel being founded on the resurrection. And he goes, he doesn't just say, we, we believe this by faith. We say, we have proof that this really happened right. and that, that there are many of the people who witnessed this and they're still alive and you can go and talk to them. Right. And that's something really significant and would be actually true in, in around 56 A.D., yeah, I mean he he mentions people by name and and then but he also men- he mentions the group of 500. Oh, right. And why would you do that? Um like you said, most of whom were still alive. <laughs> yeah. And if you're going to if you're going to say you can go talk to these people to 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 who actually witnessed this, they better be able to confirm what you're telling them to <laughs> yeah. go witness, right? 
Otherwise, your whole your whole movement is going to fall apart. Yeah, because because Paul finished or in in his dialogue about the resurrection, he says, "If Jesus did not rise from the dead, we're fools for believing this stuff." Right, and and it and it's really true. So it's so important that we understand that the story of the resurrection is true, and there's just tons and tons of evidence to support it, and. Uh, we're never asked to believe that Jesus rose from the dead by faith. We are asked to believe that it that because of that, we too can have new life in Christ. Right. That's something we believe by faith, but it's not blind faith. It's faith that rests on hard historical fact. Right. Yeah, and you, I don't, I can't remember the exact quote, but you would, you can't. I mean, even non-believers, non non-believing historians concede that Jesus rose from the dead. Not all of them, but but they concede the evidence points to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So um, what you do with that is is up to you, but right. it's, it's hard to make a case against the actual fact that Jesus rose from the dead, um, other than the legend, the real legend of the resurrection, which the gospel itself includes, is the legend that that uh, the high, that the priests and you know, teachers of the law they were trying to create a legend that the disciples came in the middle of the night and stole the body while the guards were sleeping. Well, yeah. yeah, and uh, it, uh, you know if guards fall asleep on their watch, they're going to get executed. So even that's not very likely. Um, yeah. And they were still saying that a hundred years. The Jews were still saying that a hundred years later. The Jewish leaders, right? <laughs> But if it's a legend, why would you include that argument in the text itself? Uh-huh. So, um, you know, lots of lots of good things. Real quick, let's maybe finish up our time talking. It's kind of a little bit of a turn. It's not really proof. It's not really about evidences for Scripture. But let's talk about translations just a little bit, translations of the New Testament. And I know that's one thing a lot of people have a lot of questions about, like the New International Version, the... New American Standard, the English Standard, the King James, the New King James, and however you know, New English translation. There's the message, paraphrase, and all these different things. Um, you know, there there are differences in them. How do we know? How do we know which ones to really trust? How do we know which ones to really like? The Passion Translation, for instance. I don't know how much you know about it, but should we really trust something like the Passion Translation? Good stuff. You know, maybe good kind of supplemental reading, but it's. It was translated by one guy who had a very uh, specific point of view when he's doing that translation. So, uh, should we read it? Maybe, maybe not. But we should not read it in isolation. We should read it with other things. So, uh, how do we make those decisions when it comes to now being thousands of years removed and different languages and different cultural uh, context and all of those things? How do we proceed as as Christ followers and picking a Bible even? Yeah. Well, as I mean, as a general rule, most of the translations are just really, really good mm-hmm. because we have to trust people who have the knowledge to be able to translate. Nothing when you're translating from one language to another, nothing ever gr- goes exact. Right. There are differences. That's why translations can have, you know, differences in them. But when you look at the meaning, uh, almost all the translations are are more or less trustworthy. You have paraphrases, which are, you know, if you have trouble reading scripture, you find something simpler or a paraphrase. But you know that it's there, and that if something is questionable, you go to one of the better translations. The things to look for are. Was it translated by a group of men, hopefully from different uh, backgrounds, different denominations, so that there's no – because that helps bias from coming in. Right. I think most of the major translations used today are probably really good, and it just depends on what is – what you find best so that you can get in it. If you're not understanding it – uh, it's better to find a, a translation that you can, so that you're, you'll continue reading. That's better than than reading, trying to read something you can't understand, and then quitting because it, it's frustrating. Right. So we typically use the New International Version here. We're using the new one, the the 2011, I think, 2011 or 2014 translation. But um, 
I know, I know their their translation committee includes a very diverse group of translators. It's got it's got a you know Calvinist and Arminian and Lutheran and Anglican and you know you know just a really broad group of of scholars that they bring in to do this translation. And so, uh, I, I think it I think it ends up being a very well rounded translation. Right, and translations that are continually revised, that's a good sign right, right. because they're learning more and more about things, and, and they're talk, the translators are talking amongst each other. Usually one person will be assigned to one part of Scripture. He will make a translation, then everybody else sees it and makes their suggestions, and then as a, as a group, they, they generally decide on which one they think is, is the most accurate. If they disagree, there will be a footnote there because they want to be honest and want you, the reader, right. to know that there's some debate about how this is translated. Which is what I really like about the New English translation, the Net Bible. Um, it was... It, it wasn't translated by by a publishing house. It was it was privately funded by a guy who wanted to have a version of the Bible that could be distributed freely without copyright problems, because the New International Version is copywritten. The English Standard Version is copywritten, yeah. and there are rules about how much of it you can use in print and publications and stuff like that. And he just wanted one he could distribute freely without any copyright problems. And um, the notes on on the new English translation, the Net Bible, which I think you just go to um, netbible.org or something like that, the new English translation. And but when you look at the notes, there sometimes there'll be pages and pages of notes when you come to one of those passages that they're not that there's debate about how to translate, and they'll explain why why they chose what they chose, but then they'll say some people translate it this way and here's why, other people translate it this way and here's why, and you can just read for yourself and, and come to your own conclusion as, as to uh, which one seems the most accurate. Uh, we don't use the ESV, which a lot of churches use, and that's part of my own personal bias, but uh, the translation committee for the English Standard Version was made up entirely of Calvinist minded people and and you know lots of lots of Baptists and people who went to Dallas Theological Seminary and people who were just kind of in the in a in a primarily Baptist background and so uh, I worry and I think there are a couple places you can even you could even testify this uh, like in Jude and I won't get into it in great detail in large in large part it's a great accurate translation but. When you come to when you come to problem passages and and there's translation uh, difficulty, the tendency is going to be to go with your theological predisposition as opposed to what the text is actually trying to communicate. And so we shy away from that one, even though it's a, a really popular translation in a lot of churches today. But um, like you said, most of them I think are really accurate and they do a really good job. Some of them don't. The uh, the the Passion Translation it's it's good, but it's not it's not great on its accuracy. And I I can't remember there may be somewhere uh, that I I could point people to, but you know on on one side of the scale there's accuracy, and the other side of the scale is readability. So like the New American Standard Bible is high on accuracy to the left side of the scale, but it's not readable. Right, it's hard to read. Although they've improved it with their revisions, right? They've they've moved somewhat away from from the accuracy because they originally intended it to be a study Bible, right? And so they tried to be as literal as possible. New International, on the other hand, wasn't intended to be a study Bible, but was it intended to be a Bible that the church could use from the pulpit so that people listening could understand what they were hearing, right? Because when I, for me, like if I'm reading anything that was written in a different language and then translated, uh, I can't remember. I, I just read a book last year, and I'm not going to remember what it was, but it was a fiction book, but it was written in a different language and then translated. And even though when you're reading it, you wouldn't, you don't really know that it's, <clears throat> excuse me, a translation. Just the way they build ideas in the, in a different language can really mess with. How your mind is used to working when you speak English as your dominant right. language, and so the NIV works hard to keep keep the thought flow together in a way that we we would think in English, as opposed to how it was originally communicated in Greek or Hebrew or whatever you know the original language was. Um, but like 
the New American Standard or the ESV, they 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 tend more towards the opposite, keeping the keeping the thoughts structured in the same way they were written, and that can make it harder to understand sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like the uh, the Living Bible, which was originally a paraphrase, now it has a translation. The New Living Translation is the actual translation that came out of the movement. Of the Living Bible, and um, it's a really readable. It's written, I think, on a, like an eighth grade reading level. It's really readable. It's but it's still more towards the readability side than the accuracy side. So I think when you're studying, it's just good to get in the habit of of going to multiple translations and looking at how different translators read it. And if something seems to not make sense, don't just you know don't just dig into your own comfortable translation, but start to spread it out uh, amongst some of the others and. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have any more thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I, I I just remember hearing, and I think this was probably good advice that that if you're reading the Bible over a period of time, every now and then you should change translations and start reading it because it'll say things differently and and cause you to maybe think differently about that passage. Unfortunately, I don't do that, <laughs> um, but but I think it's it's a very worthwhile thing to consider. But then it gets frustrating if you've memorized verses <laughs> yeah. in the old translation. That's probably why I don't do it because then I wouldn't be able to look up the the things that um, that I I know the wording of. And uh, but uh, but it is it is good. We you know we again we tend to choose translations in that sense uh, because we're familiar with it as opposed to helping us. Challenging us to learn more and understand more about who God is and and what He wants to do for us, and sometimes you need to shake that up, right? <laughs> so that you're so that it's fresh because the word is alive, right? I mean that the word is a living, living thing, not right. just a, a historical thing. So, well, we're we're pretty much out of time. We're right at an hour, which is what we did last last week, and so. Um, We're going to wrap it up there for this time. We'll be back again next week. Let me look real quick to see what what our topic is for next week's podcast. It's the Clues of God, and uh, that's chapter 8 in the book. If you're following along with the book, uh, you can go ahead and read chapter 8 of the book, The Reason for God, and then next week Jim and I will be talking about some of our thoughts. We're not sticking right to to everything that he says in the chapter. He, He does a good enough job on his own making his own points but just some of the same themes so that's all we have for this week we'll see you again next week for episode three of the questions podcast